great to be here with you again. We're going to start off this morning in the book of James, chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, I will have some references up on the screen and some excerpts, but I'm, for the most part, not going to have the full passages that I'm reading. So if you want to be able to follow along, um, if anyone does not have a Bible or translation of the Bible in your language, um, raise your hand and I'll make sure Mike gets you a Bible from, from the back if we need to get you a Bible. Um, you can also get the, the Bible app on your phone. There's lots of, I mean, there are lots of ways to get it. So I just want to make sure if anyone wants to follow along, you're able to. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 14. I'll be reading out of the LSB translation. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? James is writing to Christians, a group of Christians, and asking, what's the source of your your quarrels and conflicts? Now, we don't necessarily know exactly what those quarrels and conflicts were, uh, but they were were there. They were very real and uh, uh, significant enough to be causing James to write to them about it. You lust and you do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Woo, that's harsh. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God? Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Classic Old Testament quote right there. Be subject therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Wow. (laughs) But then he says this in verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. Do not slander one another, brothers. He who slanders a brother or judges his brother slanders the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. After all that, James is addressing these quarrels, these conflicts, this messy, messy group of people with sin and all all these issues in their priorities. And he says this in verse 14, uh, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. All this conflict, all these plans, all these joys and struggles, and it's all just vapor. That's very on 
uh, on par with the message of Ecclesiastes and, and the writer who realizes he's going through life, everything is a mist, everything is vanity, everything is vapor. James is speaking here into some specific situations, uh, uh, these specific conflicts and, and lives of these people to whom he's writing, but he's tapping into this concept that's common to all humanity and certainly no less uh, so today and in our society our lives are full of, of drama and joys and struggles and laughter and this life that is so marred and scarred by sin promises to yield pain, suffering, sadness, and death. When we're born into this world, if we're allowed to be born into this world before we're, our lives are taken, like some are, if we're allowed to born in, be born into this world, we have no guarantees of comfort, of peace, of safety. We are guaranteed that we will experience suffering and sadness. Uh, whether that's you know, in a moment or over the course of a 30-year lifespan or a 100-year lifespan, you know, all of that is still in just the... the um, vastness of, of the universe and all the billions of other lives that have, have lived, even a 100-year-old life or a 200-year-old life is still just a, a tiny uh, grain of uh, sand. And there are some people who realize this and realize that really our own lives are so small and insignificant in the grand scope of, of things, of, of reality, that really there's comfort in that. There's solace in, in recognizing that nothing I do matters, Right? And that's it, the pressure is taken off when we realize, oh, there's really nothing we can do that impacts anything. Life doesn't matter, just, just relax and enjoy it. That's kind of a natural, logical conclusion to come to if you're pondering our existence and who we are as people and what our purpose is without being convinced of the existence of a living, all-powerful God who speaks to us and lives through us. And of course, we have the Bible, which is this incredible masterpiece of literature, and it tells us that there is a God. And overwhelmingly, the message of the Bible, one, one part of the message of the Bible, is that life matters. God is the creator and sustainer of life, and life matters to God. Even a sparrow's life matters to God. The trees and the animals and the grass, the plant life matters to God. How much more do humans, the pinnacle of creation, matter to God? Life matters. Eternal life matters, of course. We talk about eternal life and how that matters more than just our little grain of sand of a life. But the Bible tells the stories of many, many different individual lives of humans who have lived. And it tells us that every human's life who has ever lived matters. And every human's life who's living now and ever will live matters to God. And in a way, Jesus does still offer that same sense of relief that, that nihilism does, or that, the optimistic nihilism, the sense of oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm free to do what I want because life doesn't matter. That's the optimistic nihilist, right? In a way, Jesus has a, offers us release, uh, relief uh, because he says that we can offload our burdens onto him. Remember in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you 
rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You'll notice he does have a yoke and a burden, but in comparison to the yoke and burden of the world, his is light. And there is deep relief in the realization that in some ways we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And that there is nothing we can do as puny humans that God can't handle. He is able to carry our burdens. There's nothing we can do to mess up his plans. And yet, Jesus doesn't say that he's saved us, that, he, that we can put our burdens on him just so we can step back and relax and ignore the rest of our lives, right? To, or why not, you know, if, if our final rest is with Jesus at the end of our lives on earth, why not just skip to the end? If our lives are just a vapor, just go to sleep and die and, and be en- done with it. Why not? None of this matters anyway, right? It's like a dream. Just wake up. <laughs> Now, it, it is healthy, I think, to take solace in the fact that death, the physical death in this world is not the end. Our bodies um, are not the end, but death is not really meant to be a pleasant thought. It was not meant to be a part of this world or our experience. It's not a pleasant experience for the people experiencing it or those around them who they leave um, grieving. So by no means does Jesus want us rushing to that point on our own terms. He wants us to live this life abundantly. Now, he may take some of us away from this life before we expect, but that's simply not our call to make, even though it may sometimes feel like it's just, there's nothing else to do but give up. We know that God is still there. Paul experienced that. He writes in Second uh, Corinthians, uh, basically that he had essentially all but given up on life except for his faith in God leaving him with nothing but gratitude when God restored him to life among his brothers. He didn't come out the other end thinking, why did God let me, make me go through that? He came out the other end writing to his brothers and sisters saying, thank God for everything that I just went through. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 8 through 11, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even to live. This is Paul who believes that Jesus can carry his burdens. He's still saying that he feels burdened beyond what he can bear. It's Paul saying this. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Basically, we'd given uh, ourselves up for dead so that we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So we'd given ourselves up, but we knew that God had it under control, so that's all we had left. (laughs) Who rescued us, And we are still alive. He rescued us from so great a peril of death and will rescue us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet rescue us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers on our behalf so that thanks may be given on our behalf by many persons for the gracious gift bestowed on us. This gracious gift of being burdened beyond he can bear (laughs) through the prayers of many. So even Paul was, was at the point where he wanted to give up because he knew God would be in control no matter what. And yet he stayed his hope in Christ, lived through it, and said, and said to give thanks to God for everything that, that happened. So if I were to give you kind of a main point for this message, kind of exploring like who we are um, as people, but 
in general, the, the point of this message is that this life matters and that it's worth living. Because, as Paul writes, our hope is not attached to anything in this life. That's why we have hope. Importantly, though, it is a very specific hope. It's not just a hope that there's kind of a general great beyond or afterlife, that death is not the end. Yes, that's, that's a very positive message. But more specifically, the message of the gospel is that we will be raised from the dead in like fashion as Christ, who is himself the proof and the promise of our hope, by whom and through whom we can enter into that life rather than death. We read, uh, I'll read just a portion of what we read this morning during the music time from John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the door. When his disciples said, we don't know the way to find you, to eternal life, to heaven. We don't know the way. And Jesus said, I've been with you. I am the way. I am the door. Actually, I think we read through uh, in uh, verse 4. Chapter 14 through the music time, John 14. This is different, but he's saying basically the same thing. Um, If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is talking about eternal life, and he's also talking about the here and the now. And what he's saying is that this life matters, it's worth living, but only if you do it his way, only if you do life through Jesus. And exploring what that means, what Jesus' way is, or that way of life, it's really something that every Christian does on their own through their whole life and is a little bit different for every Jesus follower, what that looks like to follow him. And I think we're going to get to explore more of those practical elements of the way in the coming weeks um, as I continue to share over the next couple of weeks, and then as we hit the fall, we're going to go into Acts and see how the disciples um, of the early church figured out how to live Jesus' way, and I think that'll be really fun. This morning, I'm, I'm more focused simply on the fact there is a way, there is a path that's worth following. What that looks like, it, we're going to maybe explore together, but there is a way to life, a person. It's not just a path, but a person worth following, and he is the only way to true life and fulfillment in life, whether we're talking about right here, right now, in this moment, in this life, or the broad spectrum scope of eternal life. Either way, it's true that Jesus is the only way. So let's just get a little glimpse of of that way here in Ephesians. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, Ephesians 2.10. Paul says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Paul is speaking in the present tense. Christians are currently his workmanship. We are the kingdom of God, the temple of God. In many ways, we are still works in progress, but we are workmanships, a masterpiece, built and fashioned not simply for decor. I always like to say that we're not saved to be beautiful paintings just hanging on a wall, though we are beautiful. I think God appreciates beauty, and the church is a very beautiful thing. It's in the fabric of our design to want to do things, to find purpose, to complete things, to stand back at a job well done, and to find satisfaction in it. There's 
something fulfilling in that. That's part of how we were built to be, and that is an act of worship when we do it to the glory of God. Identifying that work, whether we are doing it for God or not, it's kind of just a natural part of our existential struggle as a species. Uh, A few weeks ago, four weeks now, I think, I I opened a little bit of a can of worms asking the question, who is Jesus? And kind of exploring that a little bit through my own testimony. And Mike explored through John's testimony a little bit more of who Jesus is. And that's that's a huge question. We could probably spend another couple years on it. Um, So I'm trying to kind of shift the focus a little bit uh, for the next couple weeks towards kind of who are we in relation to Jesus? Or what's the point of this life after, after Jesus came? and lived on the earth, but also after he's ascended, where the church were kind of in that middle, middle age, right, of already not yet kingdom. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you know what I mean by that. Jesus is clearly the most important character in the New Testament. Right? We looked at that, and we've been looking at Jesus, the person of Jesus, for a while. But if you look at the characters who are most important to Jesus in the story of Jesus, who, who would that be? I'm just curious. If I were to ask you, who was the most important person or people to Jesus when he was on earth? The weak and the outcast. The weak and the outcast. Yeah? Any others? The sick. The sick, yeah. Yeah, the needy, the sick, the, the hurt, the outcast. And these are people who he knew would be dead in a few years. Right? He has the eternal glory scope in mind and yet he's still tending to their physical needs and yes he's reaching their spiritual needs doing it but that's not the only reason he's doing it. he's attending to their physical needs whether or not it brings them spiritual healing and yes it does bring spiritual healing to thousands but that's that's important um, that he he attended to their immediate physical needs giving them healing and comfort and peace i would say maybe the most important person to jesus would be god the father <laughs> uh, and then maybe his family he cared for his mother is very he wanted to make sure she was taken care of his family he had some priorities that way but even they sometimes felt like he didn't give them as much priority as they wanted because he prioritized his relationship with the father above all else and then it was anyone around him so whether it was his disciples who were just always with him or the crowds, or the sick who came to him. Those are the people he was seeking out. He's always going out to seek people who needed him. And it was whoever was around him. Those were the most important people to him at the time. If there was someone in front of him sick, he was moved with compassion and love to help them. They became his priority in that moment. He loves them, knowing that this is just a temporary life. He loves them so much that he's moved to compassion. He serves their very real, imminent physical needs. Just because our physical needs are temporary doesn't mean they're not real. Just because this life is temporary doesn't mean it's not real. This life is real, and it matters. What happens in this life, according to the Bible and according to Jesus, what happens in this life and the decisions that we make in this life echoes for eternity. That's a lofty claim, and it's incredible. And if we start thinking about it too much, that, that realization of responsibility, the weight of the world can, can start to slip in, and that's where we remember, okay, no, Jesus is right with us, and he's bearing the weight of the world with us, but he wants us to walk alongside him. And it gets messy. You know, we ought to treat ourselves and others as compassionately as, as Jesus treated anyone, as we all struggle to figure out life and get through it. It's messy. 
Uh, turn, if you are following along, to 1 Peter. I'm going to read a couple passages out of 1 Peter, beginning in the first chapter, 1 Peter 1. And of course, this is Peter. He writes very densely. There is a ton of stuff in this passage, in the opening of this letter, a lot of dense theology. What I really want us to pay attention to this morning is how often Peter is calling attention to the value and the purpose of the lives of the people to whom he's writing. And he's writing to exiles who may be feeling like they have very little worth or significance or purpose in the kingdom of God. They might be feeling isolated. They might be feeling like they just... Or there might be, you know, this might apply to someone who feels like they're um, stuck at home sick and they can't go anywhere. Or they used to be able to do something they can't anymore. Anyone who's feeling insignificant or um, unworthy or not having purpose in the kingdom of God. Those are the types of people that I believe he's, he's writing to here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading. Those words are, he's talking about immortality, undying having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. <laughs> yes, you're going through a lot of very you know, difficult tr struggles right now, but you rejoice anyway, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things, which now have been declared to you, those, through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Things have been revealed to you that angels are jealous of you. <laughs> Therefore, having girded your minds for action, be, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you address that as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, worth way more than silver or gold, precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again. Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. He quotes from the Old Testament, verse 24. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was proclaimed to you as good news. That this life is temporary, but that God lasts forever. And you, you kind of see where Peter is going here. Again, he's writing to these displaced Christians, living as exiles, people whose life situations may make them feel insignificant. And he's telling them that they have an unfathomably glorious inheritance in Christ. He says, even though you're going through temporary trials and struggles, that they have every reason to be just so stoked about their lives even if it's really difficult right now, because they've gotten a glimpse, a taste of, the, of what really matters, the kindness of God. And he's telling them it's time to pay attention, not to fall asleep. It's time to wake up, be sober, be alert, pay attention to what's going on around you. Set yourselves apart to recognize ourselves as holy and set apart because God has declared us holy and set apart. So we might as well act like it, to recognize our new life in Christ as eternal and incorruptible and immutable. Our new life in Christ are the things that will last for eternity. Our old life are the things that will pass away, our sin. So it's with, with all of this from chapter 1 that I, I wanted to read chapter 1 really to launch into chapter 2, uh, because in chapter 2, Peter starts off with a therefore. Um, Therefore, laying aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Love the fundamentals. <laughs> if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Find what God says is valuable, not what people say is valuable. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Another Old Testament quote. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. 
But those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, again, an Old Testament quote, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this stumbling they were also appointed. But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we have no other purpose in this life, then it's to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness. As long as I have any breath or, or sane thought in my head, I can cling to that. But notice how he talks about this light and at the end talks about this, not just a singular point of light, but this group, a multitude of lights, a family, a priesthood, a nation, all of these plural nouns. Which brings me to kind of my next point, which is this life matters, it's worth living, but especially when we do it together. The purpose to which we are called is to be living stones, living, moving, active participants, not in building the kingdom. We're not kingdom builders. Well, we are, but in being the kingdom. Sometimes I, can, I think we get caught up in, in building that we forget what we're building is us. <laughs> it's people. And our, our programs, our tools, our buildings, they're all helpful and wonderful things to serve us and the kingdom but it's not the other way around. We don't live to serve our tools. And together we become more than singular points of light as if we're just kind of lonely temples of God wandering purgatory waiting for him to come get us and bring us home. Sometimes I think people have that mindset. Together we are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood equipped to worship Jesus as a family and to grow the family. However, God leads us to do so as long as he allows us to do so. We get to be a part of that. But something Peter was alluding to that I want to kind of wrap up with is the fact that, yes, this life matters, it's worth living, but there is a life in our past that we need to leave behind. And that's part of that aspect of uh, being transformed by this new life, being born again. That incorruptible seed is that which lasts, but there are things that will fall away whether or not we, whether we cling to them until our, our last days on, on earth or not, they will fall away. They will not last into eternity. So in Colossians, Peter talks about these things. And he talks about them in terms of things above versus things below, just as it's, and that's purely um, imagery. But I'm going to read out of Colossians 3. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up, you've been brought to life, born again, with Christ, alongside him. Keep seeking the things above. Keep going in that direction where Christ is. Focus on Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Where Christ is is where God is. So you know that's a good place to focus. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Again, in context of everything, we else read, everything else we just read, this verse is not saying that the earth doesn't matter. He's saying, where should our priorities be so that we're focusing on the things that will last? You died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, you will also be manifested with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead 
to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, when you were living in them. You were one of them. But now you also lay them all aside, leave it behind. Wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you put off the old person, the old man, with its evil practices, and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and is in all. So, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the things that will last. Bearing with one another, graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. And above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Another big passage, but I want to focus on towards the end there in verse 14. Above all these things, love. Love is perhaps one way I, I can think of it as kind of being the first fruit of the Spirit in a way. Simply because, for me anyway, love is a key to unlocking a multitude of other, of the, what we call the fruits of the Spirit. Joy and peace. Um, Love, joy, and peace, those are all kind of things that we can experience internally. The rest, patience and kindness, long-suffering, those are things that are, you know, have, have to deal with other people, and they're a lot easier. It's a lot easier to be patient with someone if you love them. Would you agree? I, those are often the people that require more patience, <laughs> to, but you have the motivation to, to try to be patient with someone if you love them. Or if you don't like them at all, you're probably not going to try. You're just going to avoid them. Love is a key from which a lot of other spiritual fruit will flow naturally from. Love, when we see it and experience it, true love, the love of God, it fills us with the urge to worship God, to worship the, the source and the sustainer of all love and life and light whether that's with our voices, singing, with our bodies, dancing, with our whole lives, everything we do. Let us sing with gratefulness in our hearts, and all the more so when we walk through trials and challenges and even the valley of the shadow of death. For we know he is with us. He is near. God is not just near and with us. He is in us, among us. He lives in us. It's easy to forget for those of us who are in Christ, especially if we've been in Christ enjoying it for a long time, for many years, that we are living, walking, breathing, speaking idols 
were idols, temples, were centers of worship and of communion with the almighty creator God of the universe. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. He says, do you not know you are a sanctuary of God, temple of God, tabernacle of God. Tabernacle, I think, is a great word because that's like a mobile temple. It's a temple that moves around. The spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. For the sanctuary of God is holy, and that is what you are. So in this context, Paul is is actually bringing this up as an encouragement. He's essentially saying, yes, our bodies are important. (laughs) There's an implication here. People have drawn that, you know, we should treat our bodies with love and respect because of what he's saying here. The point that he's making in this context is more that we don't have to worry about being killed because, um, our, or our life's work, our legacy being snuffed out because of something that happens that's out of our control. If that happens, or if we suffer greatly through this life, it's not because we don't matter to God. It's quite the opposite. And Paul is reminding us that God has promised to establish his kingdom and his temple, which is us. He's promised to establish us forever. And I think that's a hope worth holding on to. Whether, whether, you know, however our life goes in this life. So, this life matters, especially when we live it together, but only if we do it Jesus' way. Christ is the door to life. It starts with love. So where does it go from there? And I'm going to kind of spend some time exploring that same track over the next couple weeks. Um, at the end of my life, I'll, I'll tell you, if I still have any, you know, again, memory, sanity left in my brain, um, I'm sure I'll look back on my life with a lot of disdain and sorrow for the many ways in which I did not live it Jesus' way. But I also have no doubt that Jesus will be standing up for me regardless, calling me his friend. And that he will have no record in his hand of any way in which I've wronged him. And that he will welcome me into his arms as his precious little brother. And I tell you now, even if he were to cast me away forever, which I know he's not going to, but even if he did, it would be worth it. If anything I've ever done in this life has helped to bring anyone else to Christ. There's no greater satisfaction, nor should there be any greater priority in our lives than loving God, Loving others. That's what Jesus said. The best way to do both of those is is by hanging out with Jesus and by increasing his circle of influence. You do that by spending time in God's word and with each other. So I'm going to dive in the coming weeks more specifically, maybe again into like biblical anthropology, humans, go back to the beginning and, and how humans were created. Why was Jesus necessary in the first place? Why are we at this place where, to me anyway, like in, in a philosophical standpoint, just logically speaking, you're thinking about existence, you really have either nihilism or some form of belief in a god or immortality or gods and an afterlife of some kind, right? It's either nihilism or that. So how are we all gods? Do we have souls or are we souls? Or if you read the book of Hebrews, I wonder if we're going to be hosted in the cloud like everybody else in the book of Hebrews or surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Do we get to join that cloud? So I'm going to kind of look into some of these interesting questions and maybe answer some of them, maybe not. Um, I hope you'll you'll join me. 
Um, Mike, would you, we have a couple minutes. Would you come and close us in a word of prayer?